Hey folks, thank you for being here today. Uh, it's my pleasure to introduce to you our speaker today who is uh, a good friend, though I've only known him for about a year and a half now. Dr. Gary Hollingsworth is the Executive Director Treasurer of South Carolina Baptist Convention. Just done a tremendous job in the brief time that he's been there, a year and a half. All the lights went out. There we go. That's, well, I'm not going to sing that song tonight. The lights went out in Mount Airy, but... Uh, <laughs> Uh, Dr. Hollingsworth has just done a great job of, of just really focusing our convention on being missions-minded and, and f- focused on the Great Commission and uh, just done a tremendous job that year and a half he's been there. It's been my honor to work with him this past year, and I want you to make sure you make him feel welcome. Would you welcome him today to Mount Airy Baptist Church? Thank you, Keith. Thank you, brother. Well, thank you so much. Uh, we refer to him as Mr. President. I don't know what y'all call him around here, but uh, I do want to say uh, to you, Mount Airy Baptist Church, I want to thank you for sharing your pastor uh, with us over this last year, and not only to the congregation, I certainly want to say a big thank you to Lisa and all of his family, I'm sure, for uh, the way they have had to sacrifice uh, time away from him Uh, with all of the various meetings and responsibilities that come with uh, serving as president of our convention. And uh, I I just, uh, you're so right, Keith. Uh, We've only known each other a year and a half, but it kind of feels like we've known each other. And uh, it was very appropriate that the first time I really met him and we taught, we met at Fats for Chicken Fingers, okay, over in Clinton. And uh, I I knew from that that first moment, he said, uh, God has placed this on my heart in terms of this was before he had become president. He was our president-elect. And I knew then that, uh, that we were going to have a great year. And uh, I want to also say what a great, great job he has done. He's not quite finished. The finish line is out there next month as we gather in Columbia. But uh, he has cast a great vision for us to not just come to a meeting, but come and do a mission project on the one-day mission effort. That is historic. It's never been done, as far as I know in our convention, or I guess any state convention, but how grateful I am uh, to Keith for his leadership, but more than that, for his friendship. Let me ask you to go ahead and open your Bible this morning to Romans chapter 13, Romans 13, and we're going to uh, look at verses 11 through 14 in just a moment. So Romans chapter 13, and if while you're finding that uh, passage and uh, I can tell, by the way, that you are well-fed and well-trained because it's, it's music to a pastor or a preacher's ear to hear those Bibles beginning to, uh, uh, to flip open, and uh, that's an encouraging thing this morning. We will attend to the Scripture in just a moment. Let me briefly also, though, say uh, how grateful I am. I didn't know that I would see my dear friend Cliff Satterwhite over here. He's a member of your fellowship. Mike Baker, uh, one of our directors of mission. I understand that you and Debbie came out of this church and are now serving as one of our directors of mission over the Palmetto Association. And, uh, and, and it kind of represents uh, kind of who we are as a state convention. You're a part of 2,149, according to our latest statistics. We have about 2,149 churches that make up our South Carolina Baptist Convention. And Mount Airy, I want to say not only thank you for sharing your pastor and being a part of these other ministries that are represented here today, but uh, thank you for your faithful giving through our cooperative program. We don't give to the cooperative program. We give through it, 
and uh, we simply try to be a channel of financial blessing to the ministries here in our state and beyond. And I want to thank you for your faithfulness and for your leadership in that regard, uh, not just for the financial part, but also for your prayers and your support. I loved your missions wall out here. I love your 365 gospel conversation emphasis. I had not planned to share this, uh, Brother Keith, but uh, I try to have a gospel conversation, if possible, every day. Uh, the one I had just this week, towards the end of the week, I was having lunch, and uh, we were down in, in, in Charleston, actually, planning for a meeting that's coming up in 2019. All of the uh, executive directors from around the country will be coming to South Carolina. That only happens about every 40 years or so. So um, I'm in charge of the logistics for that meeting in 2019. So anyway, we had one of the other executive directors from the Northwest Convention out in Portland, Oregon, who had flown in, and we were having our meetings, and, and we were having breakfast early that morning, and there was a young lady. Her name was Chris Stahl, and uh, she was our server. So as we always do, may we pray for you today. And she was a little hesitant at first and a little shy, but she was from France. She was from Paris, France, beautiful accent. I, I kind of joked with her. I said, now, what part of South Carolina did you grow up in? You know, and she said, uh, well, I'm not from South Carolina, you know. But uh, anyway, so uh, she, she asked that we might pray for a, a visa issue that they're dealing with. She and her husband are on a five-year entrepreneur visa uh, 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 program, and this is year four, so next year they'll have to go back to France to hopefully reapply and be able to come back. So we did. We prayed for her, and uh, we were going to share the gospel with her towards the end of the meal. And so she came back over after we'd eaten and, and was giving us uh, you know, the check, and she leaned over, and she said, I'm a believer. And I said, oh, well, wonderful. And then she looked around, and she said, I'm the only one, and uh, meaning that no one else in the restaurant. And so it kind of opened a different door of conversation. So her husband, here's the interesting part of the story, is that she and her husband are here living in South Carolina. Her husband is, a, is an artist, and he has begun a company that is producing biblically-based and Christian worldview-oriented cartoons for children, though, and as she said, but not for children in the church, but for non-believers. We're trying to, and he started this company and gave me his card. It was really quite fascinating. And then she said this, but my husband and I came to Christ in France because three American missionaries shared Jesus with us. Isn't that exciting? I'm telling you, that, that's, that's the way it works. To God be the glory. So I'm just telling you, we never know about those gospel conversations. So keep having them, Mount Airy. Keep having them. God is going to bless you richly. Well, it has long been at least my pattern and tradition, and, and I, I thank Pastor Keith for giving me freedom here this morning uh, to do whatever. He said, you just preach what God lays on your heart. But what I, would you please stand in honor, if you're physically able, in honor of our God and the reading of his word, I'd like to speak to you this morning from Romans chapter 13 on the awakening that must come. The awakening that must come. Beginning in verse 13, we find these words. And do this, understanding the present time. The hour has come for you to wake up from your slumber because our salvation is nearer now than when we first believed. The night is nearly over. The day is almost here. So, let us put aside the deeds of darkness and put on the armor of light. Let us behave decently as in the daytime, not 
in orgies and drunkenness, not in sexual immorality and debauchery, not in dissension and jealousy. Rather, clothe yourselves with the Lord Jesus Christ and do not think about how to gratify the desires of the sinful nature. And Father, would you now once again uh, come through the power and the teaching ministry of your Holy Spirit and bring this portion of your inspired, inerrant, infallible word to life in this moment, in this time, for each of us. May we be quick to hear and quick to obey in whatever it is the Spirit might have to say to us individually or collectively as the family of faith this morning at Mount Airy Baptist Church. This is our heart's desire, and we offer this prayer in the name of Jesus. Amen. Thank you. And you may be seated. You know, the history of our nation includes several periods of time that we often refer to as revolutionary. Now, since moving here to South Carolina, we've only been here a year and a half. I was born and reared in Alabama. I'm sorry, Clemson fans. It's just the way it is. But uh, born and reared in Alabama. But uh, I've, I've been saying I got here as quickly as I could, and that is so true. We are loving our new state, our home state of South Carolina. But I, I've become uh, rather intrigued in the last year or so just reading in more detail much of the history here in South Carolina regarding the American Revolutionary War. I've already been able to visit several uh, of the war sites, and, you know, I knew what I learned in school, but I, I just never really uh, gotten in very deeply into that history, and so I'm really enjoying that part of studying our state's history. And so we call that the American Revolutionary War. We know that later, after that war, that there was a period we call the Industrial Revolution, as we were moving from an agrarian society to more industrial in our economic plan. We know that in my day, in the 60s and early 70s, there was the sexual revolution, as it was called. And so we use that word revolution usually to describe a turning point on your car. If you drove this morning, as you likely did, there is a, a dial that measures the RPMs, the revolutions, if you will, the turning of the motor, if you will, every minute. In other words, a revolution is a, is a turning, and often it's a very quick turning. And, and so today I want to use that terminology of a spiritual revolution that we need in, our America, in, in America today and really around the world a revolution, a spiritual revolution. We often refer to them as we think historically about when that has happened in the past as awakenings, the first great awakening in America, the early part of the 18th century, the second great awakening which occurred in the latter part of the 18th century. And we have had other great awakenings. Well, the time is right, and I believe that our culture is ripe for another revolution, a spiritual revolution. The Apostle Paul, as he's pinning this to the church there in Rome, you know that if you study the book of Romans, that the opening chapters are very doctrinal in nature. We find many of our great doctrinal 
truths in those opening chapters of the book of Romans. We find the depravity of humanity with our sin nature. Romans chapter 3, all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. We find the great doctrines of justification. We find sanctification. We find glorification. We find all of those fancy words, those theological words, and how important those doctrines are. But in the latter portion of the book, specifically beginning in chapter 12, that we find a turning from the doctrinal to the more practical, from uh, that which would relate maybe generally to that which would relate very personally and specifically. And so we find here in chapter 13 and also in chapter 14 that in these more practical chapters of the book of Romans is that he's dealing with issues regarding the believer's responsibility and relationship both to God and to each other, and ultimately to society, and in chapter 14, even to government and those who lead in public service. In other words, Paul is very interested in making sure that we have a faith, as James says, that we're not just hearers of the word, but that we are doers of the word. It's not just what we believe, it begins there, but it's how we behave. And in light of all of that, he seems to be bringing, as I hope maybe in our moments together this morning, to heighten the sense of urgency for the need of a great spiritual revolution. That's why in verse 11 he opens in this section with those words. He says, and do this, speaking of those other verses, loving our neighbor and really recounting just the the Ten Commandments beginning in verse 8 of chapter 13. So do all of this understanding the present time. Understanding the present time. Do you understand? Do we understand this present time? I'm going to speak as we move through this message about how radically altered our country, uh, the, the radical alterations and changes that have taken place in our country in just a relatively short amount of time. And so when we think about this need for spiritual awakening and revival in our country, I want to do so with a real sense, as Paul did, with a sense of heightened urgency. And as a matter of fact, when we think about an acceleration of urgency regarding spiritual awakening, if you go to the doctor and have a physical and the doctor should say, well, I believe you need to lose a few pounds and you probably need to exercise a bit more, you would probably take that seriously. But you might go home and say, well, I'll begin to work on that after Thanksgiving or something like that. But if you go to the doctor and they say, we have done blood work and we have found cancer cells in your body that must be treated immediately or your life is going to be in jeopardy, there is an acceleration of urgency when you get that kind of report. Well, I would suggest to you today that like the Apostle Paul in his day, as we live in America now in this time, this present time, there needs to be an acceleration, if you will, of urgency about the day and the time in which we live. Now, let's look at a few of the things that he brings before the Romans, and perhaps they can help instruct us today. First of all, let's look at an acceleration of urgency for the need of spiritual awakening because of the signs of the return of Jesus Christ. The signs of the return of Jesus. Did you notice that again in verse 11, he says, The hour has come to wake up from your slumber. Why? Because our salvation is nearer now than when we first believed. There is a 
veiled reference, Paul is saying that this day, our day, is a day of urgency because we believe that Jesus Christ is indeed going to come again. Jesus announced many times in the Gospels that he would come again. Matthew chapter 16 and verse 3, when he's having a discussion with the Pharisees, he said to them, while you know how to discern the clouds in the sky regarding the weather, in other words, you know how to turn on the weather channel when the hurricane's out in the Atlantic, but you don't know how to discern the times in regard to the end of times. In Matthew chapter 24, the disciples came and asked Jesus, well, what will be the signs of your coming? And Jesus goes on and and doesn't give day and time in that regard, but he does say things like it will be a time of great spiritual deception. It will be a time of turmoil. There will be wars and rumors of wars, nations against nation, kingdoms against kingdom. False prophets will lead masses of people astray with teachings that are contrary to the word of God. There will be anarchy. There will be lawlessness. There will be a spiraling downward turn. These, he said, will be signs of the fact that the time may be near. Could there be a day ever before that we could say that we've had a greater sense of these signs being fulfilled before us at this very moment. We think about how many of these kinds of signs are taking place. Now listen, I know that every age and every generation could could very likely say the same. Uh, During the Dark Ages, for example, there was a small handful of Christians, faithful Christians, and they thought that their time was so urgent that surely that they would be the generation that would see the return of Jesus. We know that during the French Revolution, I just read some works about the French Revolution after the American Revolution, and believers there thought that certainly things were so desperate that Jesus would be bursting through the clouds to rescue them. World War II, my goodness, if you had been alive in Nazi Germany and had been a believer like a Dietrich Bonhoeffer, for example, uh, surely you would think to yourself, This must be the generation. It cannot get any worse. This must be the generation. Now must be the time. And all of those would have been accurate to think that. But there is one slight difference between any of those generations and this generation. And I'm going to tell you when that generation is. Now, I stepped out on faith and did this at the first service. I'm going to step out and do it again. Because in 1948, something happened. Anybody born in 1948 in here? I'm just, all right, there you go, Cliff. Just a young man. Anybody else? Did I miss somebody? 1948. That was a good year. What did I tell you? A good year. 19, well, let me tell you, in 1948, of May of that year, Israel became a nation again after 2,000 years of being dispersed and not having a land, not having a language. And they came together, and the difference between all of those past generations, even beginning in the first century, Acts chapter 1, this same Jesus that you see taken away will so come again in like manner. And they began to look instantly and imminently for the return of Jesus. But the difference between all of those times and now is that Israel is back in the land. Why is that important, you say? Well, When you read the book of Romans, you find that God has a specific prophetic plan for his his people. And uh, people have asked me, uh, Brother Keith, uh, in my years as pastoring, and I love to preach on biblical prophecy, but uh, they they will say, where is America in 
Bible prophecy? And I can give you a real quick answer right, right here. We don't find the word America in the Bible. But America can truly be listed amongst all of the Gentile nations. In other words, those nations that are not a part of the chosen people, Israel. And, uh, and we're just in that group of nations. And those groups of nations always ended up in one of two categories. Either they were enemies of God's chosen people, Israel, or they were friends of Israel, God's chosen people. And all I would say about America and our future would simply be this. As long as we continue to be a friend with the people of God in God's plans, we will have a measure of the protection of God's hand over us. But if we become enemies of the nation of Israel, then we will go the way of all the other nations of the world. And so while I'm not much of a politician and I don't get into a lot of politics, I just simply say we better vote with the people of God because that's the way God says he's going to measure things. So America is going to find itself either, and I'm not always for, you know, the politics of those who are in uh, charge in Israel. I'm talking about in a spiritual sense, the spiritual nation of Israel. Why do I say all that? It's because when you look at all of the signs of the time that Jesus laid out in Matthew chapter 24 especially, and you lay that against historically now the fact that the nation is back in the land and back with their language that had been a dead language for centuries. And one day, according to Romans chapter 11, they will one day recognize not only the new land and the new language, but the new Lord that they have rejected for lo these many thousands of years. All of these are signs of our times. Paul says, do this understanding the present time. A sense of urgency about the need for spiritual awakening in our day due to the imminent return of Jesus Christ. But he goes on to give us a second thing to consider about this heightened urgency, acceleration of urgency. And in verse 12, we find it here. There is a heightened sense, an accelerated sense of urgency because of societal decay, moral societal decay. Look at verse 12. The night he says, is nearly over. And the day, by the way, there's another veiled reference to that day, the day of the coming of the Lord. It's almost here. So, watch this. Let us, he's speaking to Christian people here, but let us put aside the deeds of darkness and put on the armor of light. Verse 13, let us behave decently as in the daytime. And then he lists this very graphic List of things that, again, in many ways perfectly describes the day in which we live, does it not? We could add some specificity to the list that Paul gave. When you look today at child abuse and domestic abuse and sexual exploitation of children and human trafficking and explosion of pornography and the disintegration of the home, and my goodness, the redefining of the home and of marriage in human terms rather than in God's terms and We could find all kinds of other things. And just this week, with all due respect, I mean, the Boy Scouts were letting girls in now. I mean, where were you know? My goodness. You know, we just thought that you couldn't find any more crazy thing. And and now one more to just let us know that we're living in this upside-down world. It is an indication of the moral degradation of our society. Now, all of that is bad news on the surface, but I have some good news for us this morning. 
And the good news is based both on the Word of God and certainly historic perspective that a spiritual revolution, a spiritual awakening has the potential of radically altering societal decay and many times even in a short amount of time. In 1857, now I was born in 1957. Yes, do the math, I turned 60 a couple of weeks ago. And uh, I had a sweet lady at the first service when she met me out front. She said, you looked a lot, a lot older in the pulpit than you do out here in the lights. Anyway, that's, that's good. I, I, can, I can get that. I, I can receive that, you know. But in 1857, 100 years before I was born, there was a prayer revival that broke out in America. A layman by the name of Jeremiah Lamphere. Now, John Avent, who will be preaching tomorrow night, he loves this story. So if he tells it, I got it first because I got here first. You just tell him, I'm sorry. I, I beat him to the punch. It's a great story. Jeremiah Lamphere, a Dutch Reformed church lay member living in Manhattan. Literally, that little church existed then in just about the same geographic location as the World Trade Centers in, in Manhattan, Lower Manhattan, where the towers fell. And in 1857, long before there were ever towers there, long before our 9-11, there was a layman, and he began to look around at what was going on in his day. He understood the present time of 1857. And so rather than moaning about it and groaning about it, he just said, I'm going to do something about it. So he called a prayer meeting. First, it was a Wednesday afternoon. He said, at lunchtime on Wednesday, I'm going to be praying for spiritual awakening and revival in our churches. Anybody who wants to join me? The first Wednesday, he sat there, nobody came. Finally, towards the end of the hour, a few folks wandered in. Long story short, you can read about it yourself. The prayer revival of 1857, led by one layman who had a passion for spiritual revolution in his age. And finally, by the end of just a few weeks and on into months, there were tens of thousands of people all over New York, at New York City, and it began to spread beyond New York. And historians tell us that in the next year after this prayer revival broke out all over that part of our country is that over a million people came to faith in Jesus Christ. Now, that's ex now let, me tell you, let me tell you why that's important. We often think that revival is when lost people get saved. Now, that is true. You know, you get a lot of lost people walking the aisles of church and being baptized. That brings revival spirit. But hear me, evangelism is the byproduct of revival in the people of God. When the people of God get revived, then Evangelism is the natural outflow. That's why we have provided, as our state convention, and your pastor is going to tell you more about it at the end of the service. This is not a commercial. I'm just telling you. We have provided this to all of our churches, all 2,100 of our churches, a 21-day prayer guide called Unite. Unite was your pastor's idea that God put in his heart for the theme of our convention, and we just borrowed it. Thank you, Keith. And um, we didn't pay you for it. But anyway... Um, but the Unite Prayer Guide was something that we've tried to say, hey, let's get this into the hands and hearts of our, uh, of our 2,100 churches because these 21 days of devotional time in the Word, time alone for reflection, time for prayer, I believe could be the seed, it's just a seed, but could be the seed that God will use to give a new burst, if you will, of revival in our churches and bring awakening into our land.
That is our prayer. That is our desire. Please take that and take it seriously. I've gone through it three times in the first year and a half we've been here. We kind of had a rough version. We went through that, took a second version through with our staff. And this is our third edition of this just in a year and a half. And I'm telling you, the principles in here are incredible. So take that, if you will. Why? Because prayer always precedes the work and the move of God in spiritual awakening. There's never been a time, biblically or historically, where God has moved in a sovereign way in a land, in a country, in a church, without first there being prevailing, passionate, uh, consistent, persistent prayer. And so I, I call you to that on this first day of your revival. Because see, revival is not just a, a series of meetings where a guest comes in and preaches. No, revival is something that happens sovereignly in the life, in the heart of every believer. So acceleration of urgency based on the imminent return of Christ, on the societal decay that we see. And then finally, and this is kind of tied together, but Paul addresses this in these latter verses, an acceleration of urgency because of the apostasy and the apathy in churches. Apostasy, that means bad doctrine. Apathy, that means a bad heart. You've heard the story. It's two Christians discussing the condition of the church and one asked the other, well, what do you think is uh, the great, greatest, greater problem in the church? Is it ignorance of God's word or is it apathy? And the other one said, I don't know and I don't care. Well, there you go, you know. <laughs> Sadly, we have a lot of both of those today. And so you see, when, when Paul takes that little personal pronoun, us, he's being very reflective of the fact that what will happen in the world is to a large extent a reflection of what's going on in the house of God. And we often think that, well, we just elect the right president or the right governor or the right mayor or the right legislators. Or we had, if, you know, if, and listen, it will never be legislated. And, and yes, I vote. And that's a, we need to vote. We need to be at least informed of what's going on. Listen, revival, to my knowledge, has never broken out in the White House. It will break out in God's house, and that's where we need to have it. We get it in God's house, then it'll all take care of itself. So, I close with this one little thought. I read a little pamphlet that was written, listen to this, in 1741. This predates the American Revolution, okay? The seeds, you know, there were stirrings already in the colonies during that time. But there was a man of God by the name of Jonathan Edwards... God used him greatly. He, uh, he preached uh, and is still known for. You can Google this sermon. I mean, think about a sermon that was written in the 18, uh, 1700s that you can still Google and read. And uh, uh, Jonathan Edwards did not get political correctness. Okay, I just want you to know. Because his most famous sermon, here was the title, Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God. Now, you think that'll just draw people in? Yeah, I want to go hear that. You know, my goodness. No. I, but... but People, and he read it. He, he didn't read it very well. They said that he just stood there and held the pulpit as if God were shaking him. And he read it in a very monotone sound. And people would literally flock to the altar because the Spirit of God was so thick. Uh, and the anointing was so thick when he preached that sermon, hands, uh, sinners in the hands of an angry God. Well, he wrote a little booklet, a little pamphlet. And it's called Five Distinguishing Marks of a work of the Holy Spirit of God. I don't have time to give you get into all five, but I do want to give them to you. Here they are. The five distinguishing marks 
of a work of the Holy Spirit of God in a person's life. Number one, a greater esteem for Jesus. Just a greater esteem for Jesus. Read the book of Hebrews. Jesus is better than angels. Jesus is better than the prophets. Jesus is better. He's better than... Jesus is... There's an esteem for who Jesus is, the person in the work of Jesus. Number two, a growing disgust of Satan's kingdom. You do understand that we're living in enemy territory. You know that. We wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against powers and principalities. We are engaged in a spiritual warfare as believers. And our beef is not with the lost people in the world. Listen, lost people act like lost people. I'm not mad at them. They're not the enemy. Satan's the enemy. I'm never surprised when a lost person acts like a lost person. I am surprised when a saved person acts like a lost person. Now, there's a problem. But there's got to be a growing disgust of Satan's kingdom and all the things that he mentioned there and that I mentioned earlier. Number three, a greater regard for Scripture, that this is indeed the Word of God. It doesn't just contain the Word of God. It's not just an idea about how to treat people. It is the inspired, inerrant Word of God, a greater regard for Number four, openness to receive God's truth. You know, God can speak truth to me, but then I have a choice about whether I'm going to act upon it. I'm going to obey it. Genesis chapter 12, you know, when God spoke to Abram and said, leave where you are and go to where I'm telling you to go. Where am I going, Lord? I'll tell you when you get there. I mean, you know. So he received the word of God, but he had to act upon it. And so there has to be an openness to receive and act upon the truth of God. And fifth and finally, a greater love for both God and humanity. And I, I just want to be very transparent when I say this. My love of God, I, 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 can, I can honestly say, uh, is pretty hot and fervent right now. I mean, God, I, I just can't wait to have my quiet times in the morning. God is speaking to me through my quiet times, through the little journal that I've been through three times. Uh, I'm just so blessed in that regard. I want to confess before you today that my love of God may be red hot, but I sometimes really struggle loving lost people like I ought to love them and being broken over lost people like I need to be broken over lost people. I've been praying a prayer that Paul kind of laid out, not as a prayer, but as a statement in Romans chapter 9. I've been in the book of Romans just in some study recently. You might kind of pick that up. But Romans chapter 9, when Paul said, speaking of the lost condition of his fellow Jewish brethren and friends, he said, I wish that I could be accursed from Christ if I could see more of my Jewish brothers and sisters saved. Translated, Paul said, I would die and go to hell myself if I knew that some of my friends could get saved. I I just want to, I'm not there. I want to be there, but I'm not there. And I wonder if maybe that's what God's waiting for all of us in the church to get so broken over the lost condition of our family, over our neighbors, over our friends, over our coworkers. Listen, there are 300,000 South Carolina Baptists in churches just like, just like this all over our state. When I say just like this, they're not just like this. There's not the Spirit of God in all of those that I sense here today. But there are 2,149 of our churches. And if you put us all together, I thought about that. There's not a football stadium large enough in South Carolina that if we got together one Sunday, we couldn't all fit in. 300,000. That's really encouraging. But you know what's discouraging? I'm not discouraging, but sobering. 
there are 3.6 million lost South Carolinians in our state. That means when you go to the Walmart and you see 10 people, nine of them are dying and going to hell if they don't meet Jesus. It means that wherever we go in our own state, that again, 300,000 just Baptists, but 3.6 million, no relationship with Jesus Christ. I, I go one step further that I love your missions wall and I love your heart, your passion for the nations. And well, you should. Acts 1.8 tells us Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and the ends of the earth. But there are over 2 billion, that's with a B, 2 billion people who this morning woke up wherever they live and they've never heard the name Jesus one time. I didn't count. I don't know. But I'd be curious how many evangelical churches I passed from my house in Blythewood to get here this morning. It's a bunch. I four or five just right here on the main road, you know. So we have access to the gospel. And if there's anything that keeps me up and keeps me going and keeps me energized and why we do what we do together and cooperatively through our South Carolina and Southern Baptist and, 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 and other evangelical groups is because there is an urgency today about getting the gospel out. And there is no plan B. You do know that. There's just plan A. God said, those of you who know me, go tell those who don't know me. That's pretty much it. That's the plan. And so the joy is that we get to do this. We don't have to do it. We get to tell others about Jesus. So in light of the urgency of the need of our day, what will my part be? What will your part be? What will our part be? It starts with just one simple act of obedience, which may just simply be praying more fervently that God would bring revival in our lifetime and in our day. I want you to bow your heads and close your eyes. Every head bowed, every eye closed. In just a moment, we're going to offer, as I know Brother Keith does every week, an invitation. This is God's invitation. It's not Pastor Keith's invitation, not my invitation. It's God's invitation. Very well, there might be someone maybe right here inside this room or perhaps over in the Life Center. You've been listening patiently on video. and Deep down inside your heart, you know that you do not have a personal relationship with Jesus Christ. You see, you, you can, I read Steve Gaines this week, said this, a person can go to hell from a bar stool or from a church pew, either one. And that is so very true. And so maybe, maybe you're in church, but you, you don't know Jesus. And so today, our invitation is first for anyone who would like to receive Christ as their personal Savior. And then for those, secondly, who do know Jesus as Savior, as we begin this week of revival services and highlighting tonight with Brother David coming and John Avant tomorrow through Wednesday, I know God's going to do a, a, a new thing and a good work. So let's prepare our hearts. So I'm opening this altar right here this morning. You, might, you don't have to leave your seat and come and pray in an altar. I know that. But there's something I think powerful about just the act of, of submission and surrender and of coming and kneeling before the Lord and just, just having a, a time of prayer, praying for lost family, lost friends, lost neighbors, lost children, lost grandchildren, maybe praying again for, for the state, the spiritual and moral state of, of, our, of our nation. And so I'm just opening this altar this morning to say, listen to the voice of God and do what he calls you to do. I'm going to pray a very brief prayer, then we'll stand to our feet, our musicians will lead us, but you might want to join your pastor and myself who will be here in this altar this morning, pour it out our hearts before a holy God, saying, Lord, 
Bring it again in our lifetime. Let us live long enough to see spiritual awakening come once again to our land. Father, take this invitation. Do with it whatever you choose to do. We give it now in the sweet and holy and saving and powerful name of Jesus. Amen.